I'm Stuart. If you haven't met me or don't know who I am, I am one of the elders here. I lead alongside my wife, Dana, I'm part of this team, been a part of this community for three or four years, and love you guys and love what God's doing and have committed to uh, make serving you and leading from a position of serving you a part of my life's mission. So a part of that is teaching. And we are in the book of 1 John, and this week we are covering chapter 4. And we've gone through 1, 2, and 3. Um, we've had some incredible teachings on love and how God's lavished his love on us and how we are to love one another. And we have a quick deviation uh, this afternoon into testing the spirits and false teachers, and then we're back into love. So. Join me here as we step into the next slide, which is test the spirits. So we start in uh, <laughs> 1 John chapter 4. Uh, let's get the next slide up there. I read my Bible in parallel like this. I like to have a translation that is known for being very accurate and then a translation that I understand easier. So. They're all fantastic. The message is a translation by a guy called Eugene Peterson, and it is designed to not be as accurate as others, but it's, it's not as technical, but it's more in everyday language, so it helps us to understand. So that's, you're going to see all of my scriptures in parallel. Don't be overwhelmed. I am in, com I am in control. It's fine. <laughs> okay, so... On denying the, incantation, the incarnation, and other, uh, other versions say, testing the spirits. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How do I test the spirits? Do I need some like Ghostbuster equipment? And it sounds like a little bit weird and radical, like what is a spirit are we talking about? you know, whiskey? Are we talking about ghosts? Are we talking about demons? What are we speaking about here? This is where the message is really helpful for me. Dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. Ah, okay, cool. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are a lot of lying preachers loose in the world. Now, let me remind you that John has written this book to a group of churches that are starting to struggle because there are other false doctrines that are creeping in and pushing in that are basically pulling people away from a Christ-centered faith. We have docetism, or comes from the root word to seem, and this doctrine was, part of the belief was that Christ's body was not actually human. He was a phantasm. He wasn't actually there. It was not substance, and therefore his sufferings were only apparent, they weren't real. And then Gnosticism, which was a big uh, one that was creeping in and causing problems, which we've touched on before, but this view, part of it, they held that all physical matter was evil, and there was a separation between physical and spiritual, and all physical matter was just evil, and then as a follow-on from that, therefore it doesn't matter what the heck you do with your physical matter, just party and do whatever the heck you want. And so that one was quite popular, as you can imagine. Um, but the problem is, with these doctrines, they denied that sin breaks fellowship with God. In fact, they denied sin altogether. 
I have no idea why someone would choose to be a false prophet or some, how someone ends up being a false teacher. In fact, it terrifies me because I'm just like, God, please may I not be a false teacher. And on that note, Lord, anything that I say that is not of you, let it just wash away. But this scripture is for you guys, even for me, because he says, test it, weigh it up. And there are ways in which we can do that. I don't know why you would be a false prophet, but we are dealing, remember, with humanity, which is fallen, and we're dealing with an enemy that really wants to take us out. And so there's lots of possibilities as to why false doctrine would arise. To make things tricky, a lie, the best kind of lie, is often 90% true. And so you'll find teachers that are out there that sound, almost everything they're teaching sounds really good and is really in line with what Christ says, but then they'll throw a few things in there which should get our red flags up. And with the state of media and distribution, social media, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, podcasts, it is so easy for us to consume potentially damaging doctrines coming from false teachers. And so John, in his father heart, because he's an elderly man writing to believers that are younger than him, and he has this fatherly affection for their spiritual well-being, he says, for this reason, for the health of your faith, weigh up and examine people's messages about God. Don't just believe whatever you hear because it's trendy or because that sounds nice to hear it. Weigh it up. And wonderfully, he doesn't leave us there, but he gives us a practical application as to how to do that. So we pick up in verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. It's pretty, it's pretty clear cut there. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, i.e. the one that does not acknowledge Jesus, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Let's jump to the message for added clarity. Here's how you test for the genuine spirit of God. Everyone who confesses openly his faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as an actual flesh and blood person, comes from God and belongs to God. And everyone who refuses to confess faith in Jesus has nothing in common with God. And that is the spirit of Antichrist that you heard was coming. Well, it's here sooner than you thought. There are a lot of Antichrists in our time. There are a lot of people and powers and messages and movements that have set themselves up against Jesus. They are Antichrist as the Son of God, the God man who came to save the world. So our number one filter for false doctrine or doctrine in general, number one at the top, the most important, what does this doctrine or message say about Christ? Do they profess faith in him as the son of God that was fully God and came fully man in actual flesh and blood body? If they do, they pass the first checkpoint and we're looking good. If they don't, false doctrine, stay away from it. Number two, we can check their words against God's word. Does what they're teaching line up with God's word, the rest of scripture? 
Number three, we can test their lifestyles. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, he says, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him, is living in God. So we can, we can look at a person's life. Are they keeping God's commands? Because then they are living in God. And lastly, we can check the fruit of their ministry. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. It's the same idea here that we're touching on. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No, you'll see their fruit. So if there is a teacher that you are drawn to and you want to check his message, what does he say about Christ? Does his teaching line up with the rest of Scripture and God's truth? Is he living a lifestyle in alignment with the commands of God? And fourthly, does his life bear fruit in keeping with the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, peace, patience, joy, gentleness, self-control, healthy marriage, good relationships, healthy relationships with children. Are there burnt bridges behind this person? Is there rubble and smoke and, and, and desolation behind them? That might be proof through the fruit of their ministry that they're not actually teaching the truth. Let's go to the next one. So we carry on in verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, the false teachers, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. God... Jesus, the sovereign Alpha and Omega, creator of the universe, supreme being, has chosen to reside within you. And he is bigger and stronger than any power in the world. So don't worry. They, the false teachers, are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them eats up what they have to say because they're saying what the world wants to hear. A false teacher and a false prophet will say what is needed to be said to gain popularity and to get where they want to go. We are from God in contrast. John loves contrasts. Light, dark, truth, error, world, God. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. That last little paragraph I like in the message, we have come from God and we belong to God. Anyone who knows God understands us and listens. The person who has nothing to do with God will, of course, not listen to us. This is another test for telling the spirit of truth from the spirit of deception. So those of us who find ourselves walking in line with God, believing what John is saying is the correct doctrine about Christ, living in line with the commandments and bearing fruit in keeping with him, a false teacher won't listen to what you have to say. If you're speaking from scripture and from truth, they won't, they won't have ears to hear it. What was kind of cool and encouraging for me as I read through this is that I thought, and it's a little litmus test for our hearts, when I read through this and I hear this, what is my internal reaction? Do I listen to John 
Or do I find myself just like, what are you talking about? Just move on. I don't know what you're saying. Give up my life, love others as Jesus has loved me, whatever. I think most of us would find that our ears perk up and we listen. We go, okay, how? What do I do? And I found myself reading this and going, God, I want this. I want more of this. I'm painfully aware of my lack of this. And that's super encouraging because just that fact that I want that is only possible because the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. Otherwise, I would just breeze past it and I wouldn't give two hoots. I wouldn't care. So if you read this and it resonates and you listen, you're doing good. You're probably not a false teacher at that point, so pat yourself on the back. Someone want to get their call? (laughs) It's a computer. Awesome. Love it when it's the computer. So, next slide. We've got God is love. So that ends our brief address on false teachers. And John comes back to what he does best, and that's teaching on love. So let's read together in 1 John 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The message Final paragraph. The person who refuses to love, I underline that because it sounds like that's a choice. I can choose, I can refuse, or I can willingly engage. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God because God is love. It is his very nature. It is the essence of who he is. So you can't know him if you don't love. And to me, that's both cause and effect. If you don't love, it's proof that you don't know God. But if you love God and you know him, his love will start to work in and through and out of you. They are proof of each other. They are connected. Most would agree that love is important. But love is often thought of as a feeling or a thought and even as something that happens to you or for you. I fell madly in love and oh, I love them. What you're saying is I love how that person makes me feel. And that's good, that's how it's designed to start. Infatuation is the starting point. It's necessary, attraction and infatuation. But our language has this limitation to the word love. We use the word love to blanket a whole bunch of stuff. Let's go to the next slide. What is love? Well, how does the Bible describe love? What's John talking about? Next slide. Me, I personally love, next slide, gummy candy. (laughs) This picture is triggering for me. (laughs) My heart rate elevates. Next slide. I love Toyota trucks. Once again, I feel something when I see this image. That does something for me. (laughs) Next slide. I love backpacking with my friends. That's us walking through a really big tree that fell down (laughs) in the Sequoia National Forest. Next slide. I love my family. 
Now we can see we're in a different realm of love, but I'm using the same word, right? Same as the gummy candy. Oh, I love these guys too. <laughs> I love my wife just as much as I love sour candies. <laughs> Next slide. I love seeing spiritual breakthrough happen through our times of worship. Very different scenario, I just used the same word. And finally, actually second to final, these are orphans at an orphanage in South Africa that me and Dana support. I love seeing God's justice in action in the world. This is the vision of Christians who wanted to save AIDS-affected orphans and give them life the way Jesus wanted them to live. I support this. I love this. Makes my heart burst. And lastly, I love my friend's Boston Frenchie mix. <laughs> Just as much as my wife. <laughs> She's really cute. Of the dog. <laughs> this is all humorously to illustrate that our definition of love in the English language is a little bit limited, but it is very important for us to understand what is John talking about? Love one another? Okay. To compensate for the blatant lack of depth in the English language as it pertains to love, I'm going to borrow from the Greek which is fitting because that was the language that this book would have been originally written in. In Greek, they have at least six words for love. I'm gonna highlight the three main ones. We have eros, which is passionate, physical, sexual. It's very much bodily. It's what you feel when you first start dating someone, but it would be awkward if you said to them, man, I really eros you. <laughs> He told me he loved me today. <laughs> which kind of love? The next form is philia, which is friendship love. It is family love. It's virtuous. It's dispassionate, but it's more about affection, and it's more loyal, and I love that we get to share life together, and we have similar interests, and we, we both love classical music and have intellectual conversation. That's philia. And lastly, agape, which is unconditional, self-sacrificing gift love. It's giving love, it's outward love, and it expects nothing in return. Agape is the I will lay my life down in a moment without hesitation for my son type of love. Gun to my head, you or your son, me. No thought at all. It's so deep, it's so powerful. It is the term used by Christians throughout scripture to express the unconditional love of God for his children. It is the love that we see demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the love that saves and restores humanity in the face of sin and death. And of all the terms and the options that John has at his disposal, he uses agape, alote. He, <laughs> I worked on that one for a long time. It's very well written out here. Anyway, 27 times in this chapter, 
He uses the word agape 27 times, so many times that you start like losing your brain a little bit when you're reading through, like agape, 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 agape. He uses it 46 times in, in the whole book, and this is not a big book, it's a short book. He is obsessed with love because God has captured his heart with this notion, this essence of who he is. Let's jump to another very famous scripture on love for some added context. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. Often used at weddings, very popular one for weddings. You've gone married, congratulations. You have passed the attraction and excitement phase and now you get to really love. Love, agape, is patient and kind. Agape does not envy or boast. Agape is not arrogant or rude. Agape does not insist on its own way. Agape is not irritable or resentful. Agape does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Agape rejoices with the truth. Agape bears all things. You cannot break it or bend it or force it to quit. Agape believes all things. Agape hopes all things. Agape endures all things. No matter what you throw at it, it endures. Agape never ends. It is the open and endless highway of God's heart toward us. Agape. I often think about, you can read this and read it as a laundry list of things that you have to do now that you've received God's love and uh, this is how I should love, this is how I should love my wife, right? Holy smokes. <laughs> Whew. Amen. The interesting thing is, <laughs> amen. <laughs> how do I get this? Because left to my own devices, that's not what comes out. You can ask her. That's, I don't naturally do these things. Just like, yeah, that's just the overflow of my heart. I'm so wonderful. So how do we get it? How do we, how do we get agape, agape love? All right, John, you're telling us. Agape love one another. How? How do I do that? Because it's not natural for us. The answer lies in Galatians 5.22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. The first word is agape. First thing he produces in your life, agape. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control go along with it. So, how do we get it? We receive God's Holy Spirit as a gift. And then we make our lives his dwelling place. We do the little that we can to make our lives a place where he's pleased to dwell. We tend the soil of our hearts. We spend time in scripture. We come into community. We confess our sin. We do the things that Jesus instructed us and showed us how to do. We are the little boy on the mountainside at the feeding of the 5,000 who sees a need and has five little bread rolls and two fish, enough lunch for him alone, and says, God, you can have what I have. It's clearly not enough. By all intelligent reasoning, what's this kid thinking? But he comes forward and he says, Jesus, here's what I have, you can use it. That's what we have to do. That's the little that we do, and we trust in faith that he makes up the rest. Yeah. 
being in scripture is so important because it's in his word that his love is revealed to us. Every place in scripture that seeks to explain and describe God's love speaks about the cross. It speaks about Jesus. This is what love is, that Christ would die for us whilst we were still sinners. By this we know love, that Jesus came and that we might live through him, that God sent his son. And we only find that out here. We find that out through his word. It is so important for us to cultivate a lifestyle of exploring, studying, soaking in, having fun in this to understand God's truth. Because whilst nature is really cool and beautiful and I also encounter God out in nature, it's not enough. It doesn't show me that God's love is there. Look at that lion tearing into the throat of the zebra. God is so good. Look at that snake eating its own babies. Wow, God must be so loving. It's not enough, it's in here, it's in this word. It's not enough just community. It's not enough just being part of the club. This is where his love channels in and into us. His truth is here, get into it, develop a hunger for it. Agape in action. So we've clarified that John isn't talking about gummy bear or French bulldog type love. He's speaking about the most powerful force in the universe, love in its highest form. And he goes on to give us the practical demonstration of this. Let's pick it up in John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice some translations use the word propitiation for our sins. In Jesus, this concept of agape love was made manifest, materialized, substantiated before our eyes. God sent his son in an outward, giving, love in motion maneuver. And this is love, not that we love God, which is easy because there's a lot for us to gain in loving God. Here we are, here's God. So it's like, oh yeah, I love that guy. He's awesome because there's a lot to gain when you love God. He's omnipotent, benevolent, all-powerful. If you're friends with God, you're in a good place. But what's remarkable is that God loved us. That's crazy. That's incredible because he didn't have anything to gain. He had a lot to lose, and it says in a scripture somewhere. <laughs> Let me find this. I'm jumping around here. There's a scripture that says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or leveraged, but instead he emptied himself. I think that's what he's talking about here. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Loving to gain is easy. Loving to give is hard, but it is love in its fullest and highest form. He sent his son to be the propitiation 
the replacement, the covering, the one who would stand between us and all that we deserve for every mistake, the consequence, the pain, the hurt of every mistake that we have ever made, he stands in between us, covers us. That is love. So let's keep reading in 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete. No one has seen God the Father in his full form because any human man or woman who saw him would just die. Moses saw the trail of his robe and was radiated to such an extent that he had to wear a veil over his face to stop the people from freaking out. So he came really close. But we know from Scripture, 1 Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the full expression of God on earth. Christ is our clearest picture of what God is like because he is God. And when we love one another with the agape, self-giving style love, the invisible God reveals himself to others through us. Let's keep reading in 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. He's once again reaffirming, how do you know? He he seems to suggest that this is the evidence of salvation, acknowledging Christ as the Son of God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God in them. Let's keep reading. And I'm going to switch to the message for the next section, 17. God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house. It becomes at home and mature in us so that we're free of worry on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ's. The day of judgment is a time when all people will stand before Christ and they will be held accountable for every single one of their actions. With God's spirit living in us, And with our sins having been washed away through Jesus' blood, we have no fear of that day. We have been forgiven and saved. Instead, we can look forward to this day, as he's suggesting here, because it'll mean the end of sin entirely and the beginning of our face-to-face relationship with Jesus. It is his love that when it gets the run of the house and it becomes at home and it becomes our way, it gives us a confidence. We don't even fear judgment. We don't fear eternity. We don't fear God. There is no fear in love. Let's jump to the next, next verse. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. 
If we are ever afraid of the future, afraid of eternity, afraid of God's judgment, if you are in Christ, go ahead and remind yourself of what God's agape love toward you means. If I'm able to say me or my son, me, in a heartbeat, and that's just earthly human fatherly love, what is God's fatherly love toward you? It's radical and unbelievable. And we can resolve our fears by first focusing on his immeasurable love for us and then allowing him to love others through us, becoming a vehicle of that which we received. And that love received and given will quiet our fears and give us confidence. Finally, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they can see right in front of them, plain as day, cannot love God who they cannot see. And he's given us this command, Jesus has. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Let's go to the last slide. I like how the message leaves this. It's like, drop the mic. (laughs) The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to do both. The beauty is that step one of that process, as I touched on earlier, is not to manufacture this love, not to go and find it. You don't earn it. You can't buy it. You receive it. Step one is receiving. Step two is to give. And in that way, we participate in the beautiful, endless flow of God's grace and love, becoming instruments through which he manifests his great love, his agape, into the world. So as I bring this to a close, let's review what we've covered in John 4. One, test the spirits. Don't be stupid. Be, don't be gullible, believing anything swayed this way or that way by trendy teaching. Be informed, be intelligent, be intentional. Seek truth from error. Be aware that there are false teachings out there and have that in your mind. Safeguard, it's your responsibility to keep your faith healthy. Two, God is love. What kind of love? Agape love. Selfless, outgoing, expects nothing in return. Unlike any worldly love, it is the highest form of love, and that is the God that we serve. That is his truest essence is love. Three, we are to receive that love. Christ loves us first, as John said several times now. He makes the first move. Our love is only a response and an imitation of the example that he has already set. First we receive, we let that settle in, then we activate and we give it out. Four, give love. We have been loved lavishly, as he says in chapter three. Now love lavishly in turn. John says the way God loved you, love others. It's a really high bar. The beauty of it is it's gonna be resourced and underwritten by God himself. You just have to be willing to go, here's my lunchbox, Lord. What can you do with it? 
allow his agape love to well up in you and to overflow to the world around you. So my closing question and dream and thought and vision is Genesis. Can we be a church known for agape love? What if people, when they said, oh, I've heard of that church. You're the guys that love everyone. You're the guys that are just super generous. You're the people that take care of the homeless. You're the people that take in anyone. You're the people that welcome strangers into your homes and give away stuff and meet people's needs. And I've heard of you. You're the love people. I would, I would love that. <laughs> I'm keen for that. And I think God is very excited to do that in us and through us. And I see it already happening in our community. I'm so proud of us, but there's more. So I would be not myself if I didn't give some kind of practical application to the end of this because I love conceptual thought and I'm a brand strategist and I love to think up here. It's what I do for a living. But then I'm like, okay, now what do I do, Stu? Don't leave me here. Give me some practicals. So I drummed up four things that could be your starting point in response to this sermon. Number one, forgive. One of the most powerful expressions of love is forgiveness. Are you holding on to something that you could let go of? Number two, restraint. I've heard from people in my table community and in our community that gossip is prevalent in our culture and is very damaging. It is anti-love. It tears people down from a distance. Can you choose not to participate in that? As a form of stepping in, a little practical step into God's agape love? I'm not going to do that. Three, meet a need. 1 John 3:17 says that if you have wealth and you see someone in need and you don't meet that need, how can God's love be in you? Ooh, nice strong challenge there. Find a need in this community and meet it this week. It could be from your time, from your talent, or from your treasure. It doesn't matter. Just look. Have eyes to see. Number four, name and ask. Make a weekly or whatever you want habit of writing down a name or names and asking God how to love that person. Do they need a text? Do they need to have lunch with you? Do they need prayer or help moving their apartment? Do they need your bicycle? Because you're not using it and they need it. Ask God to speak to you. Ask him to show you how to love. I also want to leave us with three helpful tools for studying the Bible and getting into this. And these are one, the Life Application Bible. This is what I have here. It is chock-a-block full of notes and it will blow your mind. And it makes reading the Bible very exciting because a lot of those things that you're like, I don't have a clue what he's saying, are explained. Yes. Secondly, Life Application Study Bible app, it also comes in an app form. <laughs> and in the app form, it makes reading in parallel very, very easy because it's just the click of a button and you can read in parallel. And lastly, there's a website called Bible Hub and on there you can go through interlinear studies of the Greek and the Hebrew and the English and you can go through concordances and look up root words and dig deep into granular detail. So I wanted to leave us with these three things. John has given us a challenge and truth that should encourage us no end. 
and equip us to be his church. We are going to step into communion now, and my boy Zane is going to come up and lead us in that.